casual yelling, a conversational podcast with 85% yelling, possibly 60% yelling this week. I'm Matt Elfring. Uh, with me today is uh, comedian uh, Papa Suburbs, Matt Drufke. Hi, Matt. I don't think I yell that. I think I'm just you do. loud. You're very loud yeah. like, because I have to keep adjusting the <laughs> levels on not, my mic. That's not yelling. Your voice, is, your, your voice carries. Motherfucker, I will yell. Um... <laughs> You're, you're just like, hey, everybody, it's me, Matt Drufke, bouncing off the walls. You know what so much of that came from is yeah. performing comedy those early years in rooms where bars and in, in bars where they didn't know comedy was going to happen. Bars that like, kept the, the kept the Blackhawks game yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, but like it, where it was like you're on the main floor and people are just having drinks and dinner, and then in the corner a comedy show just kind of appears. appears. My rule was always. I'm never going to chastise someone who's not paying attention Yeah, because we're just ruining their night. But <laughs> what I will do is I will tell my first two jokes like 20% louder than I normally do just to make sure that like I'm getting my voice out there mm-hmm. and I'm establishing a tone. And at that point, if someone wants to hear me, they'll turn around and listen. And if someone doesn't, I will politely leave them be. And I'm not going to give them shit if they're going to talk. Yeah, yeah, like talk yeah. to their neighbor or whatever. Well, I mean, because there's a difference between doing a show in a comedy club yeah. or a comedy room yes. as compared to every single bar we performed at. Yes. Which is... <laughs> Do you remember... Oh, my God. That Pub 222 night when they had the Blackhawks game on? You, you Okay, so this is the third time Pub 222 is coming. This is a St. Charles, Illinois pub that no longer exists. No. <laughs> oh, uh, was their comedy show terrible? Yeah, it was. Um did the microphone, because the microphone was plugged into the house PA. Yes. So if you stopped talking for any length of time, the music kicked in. Do you remember that? It's <laughs> just, here comes Lou Vegas, so like Mambo you, number yeah, five. Yeah, like if you got a laugh and you're like, oh, I need to wait for this laugh to die down. Then all of a sudden, like Nickelback starts pouring in there and you're just like, oh, all right. Look Fuck. at this photograph. So there's one night, you and I are on the show. And yeah. I remember I had to get up early to work the next day. And the Blackhawks had a hockey game. They had a this play- was playoffs. Yeah, they had a playoff game. And I remember messaging. I, I think it, I think it would have been Tom Franklin at the time because I think yep. he was running that room. And I'm like, hey, yep. is this show happening? Because if not, great. I need to. I can just know that. I'll go mm-hmm. somewhere. I'll do whatever. I'm like, but if it is happening, and he's like, no, no, it's happening. It's gonna start at eight. And I'm like, okay, that's the hockey game. And he's like, no, I think it's fine. Like, I think they'll watch it in the bar, but we're not in the bar. <laughs> Which is true. We weren't. We yeah. were in that side room. However, we arrive and we are told, uh, no, there's no comedy happening during the game because yeah. you're plugged into the house PA. So people won't be able to hear you. So you, I got very drunk in anger. Yeah. I think you got slightly tipsy, but yes. they were, if I, they must have been playing, I'm going to guess Vancouver because every, and they got killed that game. Hawks yes, got, they did. So not only were people angry, but whenever Vancouver scored, you and I would sing, oh, Canada. <laughs> At an obnoxiously loud level. As I'm half Canadian. I'm allowed to do that. It's part of my lineage. And I hate hockey, so I'm allowed to irritate Blackhawks. At that moment, I hate yes, hockey. Yeah. I would say, on average, I find hockey fine. Yeah. Um, but, so yeah. So then we, <laughs> it was then I had not kind of done the math where I was like, hey, everyone at the bar, you know how you've aggressively hated me for two and a half hours? Does anyone want to? Come into this room and watch me tell little yuck yuck jokes. That's right, because we waited until after, after the, the game, game to do comedy, yes. which was the worst idea. The worst decision. I think I was supposed to headline that night, and I was like, no, I'm going first and then leaving immediately. Wasn't because this was, I wouldn't say this was early on in us doing comedy. This no. was a few years in. Yeah. 
but we we had open mics with headliners, which is seems so yeah, but bizarre it wasn't, to this me. This wasn't an open mic. This was a showcase. Was it a showcase? Yeah. I guess it was. I always felt like it was like how Burt Borth ran uh his comedy show at Walter Payton's yeah. Roundhouse. Like the Thursday nights were the open yeah. mic. But yes, he would have an open mic headliner. Yeah. Which was always just whoever brought the most people. So it was always er- it was always Eric. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Eric, Eric Rosendis. Yeah. Um so that was, you know, that was fun in its own way. Uh here's something I want to talk about. Yeah. Because I just uh I know you had recorded it in December, but I just listened to the episode of you and XL. Yes. And XL talked about what a wonderful comedian you are. Yeah. I totally agree. You always said that you preferred characters. And here is the thing, and I don't think Excel some uh, summarized this well. Mm-hmm. I always felt like one of the big issues with you when you were just doing stand-up comedy as mm-hmm. Matt Elford yeah. is like you you got clearly uncomfortable when jokes weren't reacting. Like when you weren't getting a hit, I could you could like you would become I shriveled up. You would become physically smaller, or you would like yeah. cover your stomach and things like that. And it's a super understandable reaction yeah. that a lot of people have. But where your characters always excelled was that all of them had a confidence that they shouldn't have. Yes. <laughs> Do you think that you would have psychologically been able to create a stand-up character, a stand-up comedy character named Matt Elfring and given him the high level of confidence so that if a joke did not necessarily react the way you wanted it to, you would have been able to handle yourself the way a fictional character would have. And I know that's a very weird question, but for like 24 hours, that is all I have been able to think about. I See, I don't know because... I mean, I get that as a very deep psych- like, yeah, we're, like, yeah. we're, like we're peeling layers. Um, I mean, where I was back then, we're, we're talking at this point nine years ago, maybe. Yeah. Uh, oh, at least. At least. Uh, compared to where I'm at now, where I'm on mood stabilizing drugs, mm-hmm. and uh, I've jokingly said, like, I didn't know people could go a day without thinking about killing themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where I was at that time. I understand that. And I was emotionally really messed up during that time. So when you saw me on stage, that was real me. That's mm-hmm. me at home, mm-hmm. which I didn't like people seeing. Uh, so there's something in the neurodivergent. Community, which I produce a podcast, Gifted Chemistry Adult, uh, called Masking, where you pretend everything's okay, but it's not. And I feel like when I was uh, Joey Savior, Edward Smathers, all these weird characters, I wasn't me, so it was very easy to be not me Mm -hmm. on stage. When I was actually me, and not like confidence me, like when I was on camera doing like shit with GameSpot or whatever. Yeah. Which, that's different. I called that flipping the light switch before I knew what masking was. Mm -hmm. It was very easy for me to be on camera and be like, hey guys, we're here at San Diego Comic Con. We're having a great time, right? And like inside, I'm dying. Mm -hmm. I couldn't do that on stage. And I do not know why. I'd get through that first bit, and then I would just die. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think there is something to be said about... Like, the one thing I always said that I had to realize was unhealthy was I always felt like when people were saying like, I just don't like your jokes... Mm-hmm. That's in a way being like, I don't like you, you know, because yeah. all of my jokes were about me. So I'm like, I don't, how do you, you know, I don't know. I had a very hard time for the longest time differentiating the two of yeah. understanding where my material ended and where I began. Yeah. Uh, 
And that's not just, look, it took me a lot of therapy to kind of work my way through. There was a lot of onstage therapy, I remember, for a while, too, when you were going through some shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I went through a divorce that was yeah. not easy. I'm, and what's funny is, like, I say not easy, and then I hear about other people's divorces. Yeah. And I was like, oh, no, this was, it wasn't easy. Like, we settled things pretty amicably, and, mm-hmm. like, we knew we had to have a cer- certain level of, um, of, of friendliness and yeah. uh, compassion and understanding because we were, you know, our son was seven at the time. Yeah. Uh, and so I, while I, I think what was hard for me about that was that like, all I wanted to do was just get out of that situation was just be mm-hmm. like, all right, cool. If I don't see anyone for a while, then like I can let things scar over. Yeah. And it was like having an exposed scar every day. And so how do you, uh, how do you, feel better about yourself well alcohol helps yeah uh oh and yelling into a microphone also helps yes especially if you get some sort of positive reaction so you know it was but it was i've had many friends get divorced throughout you know the years i've been around mm-hmm. with with you and your ex-wife your ex-wife was still coming around and making cookies for people yeah and i'm like and no one's ex-wife that i knew out of any of my friends would like still hang out and still be like yeah, cool. like she was still at my she was at my album recording, which yeah. was awkward, but at the same But I mean like that's I, how you were still getting support from her. Sure. And I also understand that from her perspective. And mm-hmm. like to this day, we are still friends. Like I just saw her a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And it was very pleasant. She has a new she has a new son and uh uh um like it's great seeing him and great seeing her being a mom again to a child of that age. And yeah. so like there's so much wonderful stuff there in the time. And especially because, like, I wasn't dealing with a lot of my problems uh, well. Yeah. Then that was just, that was all being compounded. Um, but now, but but you got, I'm going to say get over that. You got over the hump, we'll say. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And now you're in a, and you're in a much better place now mm-hmm. to a point where um, I came to your wedding. Yeah. And crashed it with someone you didn't think was going to be showing up. That's true. That was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Because uh, I took, because I got drunk before your wedding, and then showed up in an Uber mm-hmm. with one of my friends who you knew, but you weren't really. Yeah, <laughs> it was weird for me. It was weirder for Aaron. And like yeah. every now and then, we still talk about like if, if like we're going through Facebook memories, and I'm showing yeah. her pictures, and she'll see a picture of of Fitzy, and she'll be like, "Hey, you remember when he came to our wedding and we didn't invite him?" And I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> yes, I do." I I feel like that is uh. I didn't know the boundaries because yeah. I was going to bring my wife, but we had a newborn yeah. at that time. And this was my first night away from the newborn. And I'm like, there's no one funnier to hang out with to me alone than Trump and yeah. Patrick. Well, and here's what was super weird about our wedding is that we had a relatively smaller wedding. Yes. And we were having, so like my friends who were comedians and her friends who were teachers, yeah. we had a rule that was like, unless we both knew who the spouse was, they couldn't come. Yeah. So like Aaron had met Nina before and, uh, you know, and there are teachers who were like, I've met, I had met the husband before. So of course they were welcome. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, um, there were comedians. So the, a lot of people just didn't have plus ones. Yeah. So I think at some point when we were just, you know, it was weird because there were people who like, we each kind of knew who we would have wanted to see there, but mm-hmm. just, we just didn't have the logistics. And then Sean Fitzpatrick shows up. <laughs> Who again, a delight of a man, and I would never want Sean to feel otherwise. No, no, uh, and and I would say one of the most alt comics. Yes, uh, 
weird sets that were I really really loved and willing to do real silly things. He made me he made me a great poster, which mm-hmm. was my neighbor Popo Zhao, uh, <laughs> <laughs> of the bus stop and the girl next to Kevin Federline. It's fucking fantastic. Uh, let's. How are you feeling? Because you're oh God, you're like probably 18 years 17 years in the comedy years in, yeah how are you feeling about yourself as a comedian compared to obviously compared to when you started it was a I, different thing but how do you feel about yourself and where you're at now i go up less i go up as little as i've ever gone up before mm-hmm. i have a long-standing uh agreement with my wife um and if people need to know uh, my wife and i we have a, a, a three-year-old son mm-hmm. um so if I do a show during the week i don't go up to the show i produce okay uh so i go out once a week yeah. And that's a very fair number for me. And, but the good news about that is like now that I'm not super concerned about like getting booked at clubs or what shows I need to be yeah. or whatever, every joke I do can be like just something I love doing. If yeah. I want to do something a little weirder, I can. If I want to uh, work on something uh, that I truly believe in instead of just being like, uh, I, here's this crowd and I've got three shows tonight. So like I better make sure I like follow the formula of yeah. things that work because like as – uh, if people are listening to this and they're not a comedian, often when you're featuring, like if you're the if you're the middle guy, you're doing 25 minutes a night, or if you're closing and doing a headlining set, mm-hmm. and if you go up more than once a night, repetition is super important. Yes, because you don't want to get to the second or third show of the night and think, does this joke sound familiar? Because I've already told it at earlier shows, mm-hmm. or does this joke sound familiar? Because it's the second time this set I've told it. Yeah. So it's so important to be like. My jokes have a have an order, and this is where they start and where they end. And I do not break from that unless there is like a big issue. Yeah. So, but now that I know, like, look, if I'm going, and there are nights I go to still on Friday that I don't go up. I'm just there to hang out. But when I go up, I can be like, all right, I can do what I want. Like, yeah, I can yeah. get real silly. I still want the I still want it to go well, and I still want the room to care about what I'm doing. But I can create whatever I want to create, and that has become so freeing to me. Yeah that I am happier now with my material. Like I, I'm getting, starting to understand what a new record can look like. Yeah. And I am, uh, I'm excited about that process, but also not in a hurry to do it because like, I'm not using it as a booking tool. I would, I would use it truly as like me trying to make a piece of art that I like having out in the world. Yeah. And you're one of the, I think you're one of the first people I knew that put out an album. Like yeah. we, we recorded it. I mean, locally, not like you're not like you're the first person to ever do a comedy it was, album. It was, Weird. Bill, it was Bill, Cosby, Bill Cosby, then me. Um, yeah, I, I knew, I mean, I think part of that is because when I grew up, I loved comedy albums Yeah, and I just wanted to consider myself like, should I have put out a record? And not that I'm not tremendously proud of it, but like, was I an established enough name to, uh, to have put out a record? Probably not. And like, which is why, like, it was independently produced. It was not yeah. part of a label, but yeah. like I'm still super proud of the work I made and all of the uh, of like the art I created and yeah. all of the work I did to get to that point. Um, I was very proud of that, so I was really enjoying. It. Like I I love that album. I'm super proud of it. But it's also why like probably like six different times I've said I've been ready to record another record. Yeah, and then something big has happened in my life that I was like, well, now I need to stop and think about this because mm-hmm. like. So uh, the first record came out in 2012. Yeah. And then I got divorced and went through a spiral. And I'm like, okay, well, that's the record. And then I kind of pulled myself out of that a little bit. I'm like, okay, well, that's the record. Then my dad got real sick. Mm -hmm. And then I got married. And then I had a kid. 
or you know, and then like COVID happened. Like, yeah, and yeah. and now I'm in this spot where it feels like things have kind of. I don't want to say settle down because they certainly haven't. It never settles down I'm tired. when you have like a, when yeah. a small child. I'm tired and frustrated all the time. Um, but like that I know what my life looks like mm-hmm. and that I think I can properly through art give an accurate representation of what that is. Yeah. Um, and as well as like I feel as mentally healthy as I've ever been. Like since that last record, I have been seeing a therapist for the better part of five years i've been on an antidepressant for the better part of three years Mm -hmm. um uh i have this amazing beard the beard is good oh it's so it's a solid beard i love this beard uh you know i've been doing things like what you said jokingly is that like there wasn't a day you didn't think about killing yourself i never expected myself to be 40 and i'm gonna be 45 yeah you know, in May. And even I wouldn't have expected, I could say that like when I turned 40, that I wasn't sure I was going to see 45. Um, But like, I'm at a better spot in my life when I don't, it is a very rare day that I have that mentality. And it's been a very, very long time since I've like actively fantasized about acting on that, on those ideas. And so like, I am in a very happy place and I try and spread that in my comedy and I'd certainly try and spread that in the way I produce a show. Yeah. Uh, and so that's like, that works for me in a very effective way. You're also like, well, cause when we started, I say started, I think you might've started about a year before me. Cause I was in Chicago. Then I came out to the suburbs. Yeah. The, the 2006 is when I started. 2000. Yeah. I was doing um, 2006. I feel like we started right around the same time. Yeah. You were more Chicago centric and I yeah. was just kind of like going anywhere. I started where you should, where yeah. you should quote unquote start. Yeah. And then I came to the suburbs, but the scene when I was out here was, um, there was an open mic at a hookah bar uh-huh. and then Burt Borth was running Walter Payton's roundhouse. Yeah. And then there was Zanies, which none of us would ever be able to get into at that time. And that was it. I mean, there were some weird outliers like Riddles was around. Oh, that's right. Doing the Monday open mic. There was a place called the Barrel of Laughs. Yeah. Uh, which had an open mic that I got thrown out of. Uh, There's a place in downtown Elgin. Yeah. And there were, you know, and so you were like finding music open mics. You would just do. But yes, there was no scene. Yeah. There were, because there was no idea of like people continuously coming together except mm-hmm. at the Roundhouse. And I never felt out of place. I never felt fully like I belonged there. Yeah. One thing, because I was like the youngest guy there, mm-hmm. like I was 26, which is now crazy saying that I was the young guy at 26. As so many, so often now you see people starting comedy 18, 19, 20. Um, but all the guys at that, I say guys because it, it was all men. It was all and men. It was always dominated. Amelia by and Kat Rabarsky, and that was it. Yeah. And it was all like guys in their 40s to 70s doing one liner jokes. Yeah. And also a lot of racist jokes, yeah. which did not. <laughs> And then getting upset that they like that they weren't being discovered by Zanies. Like all of them wanted to do more work in Chicago. And I'm like, well, when do you go into Chicago? You've got to do Chicago open mics if you want to be in Chicago. Yeah. And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, have you emailed Zanies? And they're like, no. And I'm like, what do you think is gonna happen? You're not just gonna be discovered at Walter Payton's roundhouse. Yeah, there's not like there's it, no audience. It's not like the minor leagues where like there's a guy in a in a, <laughs> a scout for comedy, just yeah. like I hope this guy tells that joke about uh 69 degrees he doesn't care what temperature it is (laughs) i'm just giving that shout out to pops because i love that joke i don't know if pops is alive (laughs) i hope he is i hope he is too uh yeah but like there was no understanding of like you had to experience things and then when i started realizing that i could learn more spending time in chicago Mm -hmm. because 
when I was starting to go to Chicago a lot, like to early 2007, it, a bunch of people had just left. Yes. Like, uh, Kanane had left, Kamal had left, Matt Bronger had left, but like, Cameron Esposito was still there. That's Drew, right. Drew yeah. Michael was just getting started. Uh, uh, Hannibal Burris was obviously like the legend at that point. Like when he showed up, people paid attention. Adam Burke was is, was and is still there. Yeah. And like and so like you would go to a place like Shuba's, which was the Sunday night mic where everyone showed up, and I would sign up and I'd be like, all right, I'm 13th on the list. And then it was, hey, you have to wait because Hannibal's going up. Hey, you have to wait. Cameron's here. Yeah. Hey, you have to wait. TJ uh, Miller showed up. Hey, Nick Vaderat's here. Like, and all these people would just keep showing up. And then at the end of the night, it's like 1 a.m. I'm now 47th in line. Yep. And you just have to learn like, all right, well, that's what it is. But and you, you can't take it personally. No. And it's also, you have to, it's not just that you can't take it personally. You have to understand what an amazing school session you're yes. getting. Uh, I have never been a guy who thinks it's a better idea to go to four open mics in a night. Yeah. I think it's, I think you can learn just as much, if not more than being at one open mic and paying attention to yes. everyone else. Yes. Like you get so much more perspective being able to watch something from the audience perspective and to be like, Oh, this works. This doesn't work. Is this something I do? Is this something I don't do? Mm -hmm. How do I figure that out? It's why, um, I have always kind of enjoyed this concept of a suburb scene where it was like Monday night comedy shrine, Tuesday night, Tuesday night mojos, Wednesday night. And the, it used to be a okay. Yeah. Like, and you would go to a place and you'd sit and you'd watch and you'd be supportive and you'd understand, but you could like, that's how I learned is so much from being like, Oh, this guy is not doing, why is he not doing? Well? Mm -hmm. Oh, this person's doing very well. Why are they doing well? Yeah. Uh, and like, if you're willing to be curious and ask those questions, you get just as much of an education as you do getting on stage four times for four minutes each. Yeah. I just think, and again, I'm not dismaying that the people who do the hustle and do it's that different cultures for, and, and also fine. like different ways to learn, you yeah. know? And I'm, I'm super aware of that. I like, but it's also, I think that so much in comedy, you get this dismissal idea where of like, it's this way or you're not doing it right. And it's like, no, like every, at the end of the day, comedy is a pretty, like comedy, it's pretty easy to see if someone has progressed well at comedy. They're yeah. either getting laughs or they're not. And whatever process they're using to get there, okay, quit, so be it. Like, mm -hmm. as long as it's not like, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, as long as it's not bothering other people, like, great, go ahead. Do what you need to do. Yeah. But also you're, we saw this a lot in, in the suburbs because you, you many so many people get their start in the suburbs before mo moving yeah. out of Chicago or just quitting comedy in, in general. Mm. Um, when you start out, you are trying to go for easy laughs, which usually back then meant punching down. I think culture has changed so much yeah. since then. I mean, there's still offensive comedians around their first year. But you see people that are toxic joining the scene that kind of – I remember – Doing an open mic, I'm not going to mention the person's name uh, that that started this bullshit, but it was Kat Rabarsky. Why are you writing their name on the wall? Uh. <laughs> Kat Rabarsky was going up, who later became like a writing partner of mine. Like mm -hmm. we, when we did the Burbies, which is the suburbs, one uh, of my favorite or, writers. Yes, ever. we would always perform together and like give. It was like usually best comedian award. It was like, why mm. are we the people doing this? Like there are much funnier people coming up to give awards away, but. Kat and I got along really, really well. I remember the first time seeing her go up, and there were two other comedians at this hookah bar that we used to perform at. Hi, Andrew Masai. I still talk to you. Uh, and 
I remember two comedians there going like, "Oh, a woman's doing comedy." I'm like, "What? Why? It? They have different genitals. It doesn't fucking matter. Is she funny? Yes. So like, yeah. who cares? You guys aren't funny. That's yeah. the difference between her and you. Well, and also, even if you were, why are you resenting her ability to do so? Exactly. Like, uh, I still remember the punchline to like four of Cat's jokes. I do not remember the punchline to most people's jokes. I could do. Cat is one of those people who I right now could get on a stage and do 10 minutes of her material yes. verbatim and get most of it right. Mike Wiley is another one of those comedians. Oh, God, he's great. Uh, honestly, Lewis is one of those comedians. Lewis Ryan, yeah. who hasn't done comedy in fucking forever. Who has moved away con- in- entirely. I, I actually, I know you remember this, but most people don't. As a character... I went on stage and did a 15-minute set of all your jokes, but as Pitbull. <laughs> Pitbull Drufke. Pitbull Drufke. And I would just say, Dale. <laughs> and then I'd do one of your bits. Yeah, that always meant the world to me when someone likes that, you know, because it meant that, like, open mics are so hard to stand out at. Because yeah. so many people, you're right, because so many people are new, so they fall into, like, this kind of like Charlie Brown teacher cadence where like, mm-hmm. even if you're trying to listen at some point, all you're hearing is like, wah, 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 wah. Yeah. Yeah. Wah, wah. And then the audience doesn't respond. Yeah. <laughs> and so when you have someone who is a, an independent, interesting voice that cuts through mm-hmm. like a knife through butter, like where you're just like, Oh, what is it? Like, and that forces engagement and yeah. it's so good. Yeah. And there are other things that can do that. Confidence is a good way to do that. Yeah. Um, but so that yeah, it's just such an it's such a refreshing thing to hear sometimes. And unfortunate like and yeah, it is so upsetting that when people don't understand that like someone who is a woman, someone who is a person of color, someone who is LGBT, mm-hmm. uh and that they that you They're are, judged based on bullshit that doesn't need to be judged. Yeah. You judge people on their jokes, not about their yeah. sex. Well, and not only are they judged based on that, but that they're having to sit through an open mic. Where uh, and I feel like we're slowly leading into talking about what I wrote, yeah. uh, um, and that they're judged on who they are, like, and that they're hearing comments like judging things that reflect who they are, either through ethnicity or sexuality or mm-hmm. gender, and that they're being told like, "Look, that's not r- that that's wrong, yeah. or that that's not as good as what I am," yeah. uh, and that now they're being expected to go up. Like you've ta- you've changed an audience's perspective on exactly. on what is going to happen. I remember um, Sarah Clancy, who was on this show. I don't think I've up the original podcast. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk to friends. I'll re real upload her episode. Sarah and I have been friends for like a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember like you and I went through her joke drafts and kind of and kind of helped her. But I remember talking to her, texting with her before she went up for the first time, mm-hmm. and the person before her was telling trans jokes, and then she had to go up on stage and she killed that night. Yeah. But I remember her texting me and be like, this is like bullshit because now I have to follow a person where they're getting some laughs, not a lot of laughs, but they're getting some laughs at trans jokes. And she's like, how do I go on after that? And all I told her was like, I don't want to swear. I'm just going to swear. I said, fuck the audience. You have the stage. You have the mic. Fuck them. Yeah. Well, and especially because um, and I don't know how like my interaction with Sarah led to probably five months before that first time is when she first mm-hmm. reached out and said hey i've been thinking a lot about doing stand-up because i want to talk about what it is like being a trans woman in today's culture yes and my first thought was like well that's incredibly 
brave yeah. and interesting. And I understand that there that there is a lot of things that you can probably joke about and have it work very well. And so I, that w- that situation is exactly was exactly my fear for Sarah. Yeah. And I I commend her. She shows a bravery I have never been asked to possess. Uh, in the fact that like she dealt with that like a pro and she mm-hmm. delivered an amazing set. We had her at uh, the show I run as part of our like special Christmas show and she was brilliant and yeah. her jokes are fantastic. Uh, she was just coming up with great premises right away. Like I feel like all the notes you and I were giving were like, take out the sentence, take out this. Like we're just like editing things that every comic needed to hear. It was, it's just flow. You have to have a flow between jokes. You can't ramble on mm. too much. Yeah. Well, and also understanding that like how you write on paper is not how you speak on stage. Except for me. <laughs> uh, and that like, and that the audience is expecting like a certain type of like punchline payoff. There, like, there, so, so many punchlines yes. for so much time. It's 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 a rhythm. Yeah, it's it's set up punchline, set up punchline. Yeah, and and so you need to you need to be able to handle it. And I think that Sarah has done super well. Yeah. I I hope she's you know I hope she's been writing more. We actually just texted recently, and I'm I'm glad to hear that like she's keeps pursuing this project because yes. comedy is something that can be very rewarding if you're using it for the right things. It's mm-hmm. also something that can be very dis- uh, uh, destructive. I've certainly been on both sides of that. Yeah, and so like. But I know the good it can do, which is why I always try and foster that with for other people. Yeah, uh, that's why it made me super happy that you were getting involved in that because, like, you know, I understand that you're in a position now where you can't do a lot of stand up, but like, you can do this. Like, you can help her. You can yeah. edit. You can be support. You can be the support system, and that, in a lot of ways, is like the best parts of comedy for me now. Yeah, like even more so sometimes than going on stage. Just like watching someone who I've like helped and giving them an opportunity and then watching as they absolutely crush Mm -hmm. gives me the same level of joy as doing well on stage myself. I want to point something out. And I think, I think I've told you, I don't, I don't know. This is something I've told very few people. Uh, I didn't quit comedy because first of all, we talked before the show, like how I wrote a big post about quitting comedy, Mm. which in itself was bullshit, Mm -hmm. you know, people reading that, but I, I get my feelings out, through writing. That's okay. just who I am as a human being. Yeah, that, I understand. That's why I'm a professional writer. Mm-hmm. I didn't quit comedy because I couldn't go up anymore. I quit comedy because people in the scene, certain people, mm-hmm. there's there's a I'll, I'll tell you the names off <laughs> off mic, made me feel really shitty at a burby show. And I was already kind of on the cusp of leaving. And I loved the burbies, but people were drunk. I don't really I've never really drank a lot. Mm-hmm. And they made me feel less than there was a lot of animosity, I feel like, towards me because I would go to an open mic and do six sets. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's not – for starters, it's not like you were doing that at every open mic. You I were was doing, doing that, that at a lot of open mics. You were at places besides AOK? Yeah. Oh, all right. I don't know that I was ever aware of that. No, I was doing it at a lot of places because I'm not patting myself on the back. But I, people I, wanted to see it. I was doing six different characters, and like we talked about, there were – there at open mics, there can be lulls where you lose the audience. Uh, there can be points where someone new in open mic does great. I was filler. Mm-hmm. I was put up there in different costumes for yeah. a lot of these shows. Like a second host. Exactly. To get the audience back. Mm-hmm. And again, I know it sounds like patting myself on the back, but I'm getting out there because I have a different voice than everybody else. And because what I was doing on stage was fucking weird. Yeah. But that's what I want. You want the audience to pay attention to the other comedians. And sometimes 
I would be brought up to get their attention back. Mm -hmm. And that's fine because I didn't give a shit about making it as a comedian. I was doing it up there because it was fun to me. Yeah. It was silly to watch a magician do a child's magic act on stage and then talk about having to want to have sex with everyone in the room. It wasn't just the women if you really paid attention. I also wanted to bang the men. Of course. (laughs) Why would you not? (laughs) I I should say, uh, to fill things in for people who maybe uh, have not, do not know, uh, the Burbies are a... um, we do a, a holiday party at the end of the year. We give out awards. We kind of treat it like an award show. People get dressed up. It's always like this very silly time. Um, the downfall of doing that is that like when you're doing awards, it means there are people who don't win. And that, uh, <laughs> that, but like, or there are people who don't get nominated and that leads to some hurt feelings. And that's, uh, that was never the point of yeah. the, it's to celebrate things we love. What we do, yes. And also, like, just, it's also the fact that, like, if we just called it a Christmas party, no one would come. They'd want to open mic. And yeah. I super understand that. So, like, we, myself, Amy Blaze, uh, who is, like, the other big, yes. like, proponent of this, and, like, Kristen Toomey when it started, we understood, like, you had to create spectacle. And yeah. for lack of a better, of, like, not to point myself on the, like, not to pat myself on the back, if there's kind of one thing I do better than most know how to create a spectacle like yes, yes. i know how to i know how to like roll out the red carpet um and we've gotten so much help with people like kb marion and dave sicko and like you know but amy and i were are always the people who pushed rudy ruiz another one of like how do we make this this big silly stupid crazy thing and fortunately people seem to really be on board to it mm-hmm. um the downside is is that the people there are some people who have gotten their feelings really hurt, and I always feel bad about that. But I also don't know how to change it so that situation doesn't happen. It's always going to happen. Yeah. But at the same time, even if your feelings are getting hurt because you're not winning. Again, I was nominated nine times and never won. Uh, you gave other comedians that may not get nominated, that may not win, you gave them opportunities to go on stage yeah. and present awards. And uh-huh. I feel like there are a lot of people who... You you knew we're still kind of like working the cog and working the machine in order to be a better joke teller on stage. You're giving them opportunities to go on stage, even to do a bit for a minute and a half, and then hand out an award. You're still giving them opportunities. So that's what's important about the Burbies in general. Well, yeah, and it's just like it's a night when we're all together. So Mm -hmm. like Peter Jem Burns, who is a comedian I love. I think he's a genius writer. Uh, Everyone should be checking him out. He like shows up, despite the fact that like he doesn't love hugging people. Like, nope. and he understands that, like, he's one of the older dudes on the scene. Uh-huh. He, he bought Don Rickles' tuxedo at an auction, and he shows up every year in tuxedo, and he just has a good time. Like, and he, like, gets to talk to people and hang out. And especially, like, last year, um, like, at the time that it happened, our good friend Kenny DeForest had just passed away. Um, you know, we were dealing with kind of, like, loss. We're all still kind of, like, trying to figure out what post-COVID comedy looks like. Yeah. Uh, that things are just so complicated. And like, if there's a night when we can all kind of get together and be together, then that's important. That's something that means something. Hey, man, I'm coming over to your mic because my XLR cable is terrible. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, do you want... I feel like I should also stand, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to lean over you. Oh, and I we're, love this. Oh, this, our faces are so close. Oh, no. I think I just put... All right. It's okay. Hey, uh, how about... <laughs> No, it's okay. The first in live one. Don't get, don't okay, get, yeah. don't get creeped out. Don't get, don't get Our eyes out. are so it's, close. I know. It's really close. Oh, I want to lick your glasses right now. That's really messed up. <laughs> hey, uh, you want to go and plug all the things you want to plug? Just go plug. 
Uh, yeah, I'm like if you like comedy, I run a show every Thursday night with some amazing people uh, called Still Not Friday. It's every Thursday at Two Brothers Roundhouse in Aurora. It's an eight o'clock show. It's always no cover. Uh, Matt and I and other people also write for a great website called FancyBoysClub.com. I, I just wrote a piece about comedy and how uh, inclusiveness and diversity is a is a positive thing, and also how not being a shithead is a positive thing. How dare you? Everyone, yeah, and you know what? Everyone loved it. Everyone responded 10 of 10, no notes. They were just so welcoming, and it was such a wonderful element, and, uh, you know, made me feel like I was having a real good moment for myself. For, for, <laughs> it's so hard to do this so close to your face. All right. I'm only going to get closer. <laughs> uh, thank you, man, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank and coming to my house where I realized I needed a new XLR cable for one of my mics. Hey, that's, look, if we could do anything, it's talk about breakfast lasagna. Yeah. And uh, and figure out we need some new cables. Uh, yeah, please, if you're a paid subscriber to my Patreon, you get Breakfast Lasagna episode, yeah. which is fantastic. And if you work at Guitar Center, send Matt a new XLR cable. I mean, I'll just buy one off Amazon. Oh, They're cheap. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Bye, Matt. Bye. Thank you to Matt Druckby for coming on the show. Coming to my house, that's the first time I've done in-person recording. You probably didn't know, but there were a lot of issues with my uh, XLR cord going out and having to, uh, as you heard at the end, record inches from his face. So new XLR cables have arrived. If you are interested in finding more of Matt Drufke, there will be links in the general description of this episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, all the places. Ending music that you're listening to right now is the uh, song called Gilded Age by the Muggles featuring Tom Wanderer on singing, Andrew Parks on bass, Will Ash on guitar, and me, Matt Elfering, on drums. You can find us at muggles.bandcamp.com. It is an album we recorded 20 years ago and released in 2023. Anyways, that's uh, it for this week. If you're a subscriber to Patreon, you'll be able to hear the Breakfast Lasagna episode of this show and other breakfast lasagna episodes featuring random people being asked about breakfast lasagna. See you next week.